knowledge, your greatness, your power, your mercy. And God, we just thank you for what it means that you took our sin and that you were crucified, buried. And God, we thank you for what it means that you rose again and that you made a way. God, I pray that that truth will be so profound in our hearts we couldn't help but to bow our hearts, our heads, our bodies to you to worship the true living King. For it's your name we pray. What is up, Grace Fellowship Church? Look at this reunion. I'm not going to be able to preach today. I just want to spend all my time catching up with you guys. You guys are looking good. So good to see you. Mary O. I could go through and list all kinds of people in here. Thank you for having me. So good to be with you guys. So, yeah, I hate you felt gypped. Um, I understand. So no uh, no harm done there. So um, Celeste and the kids would have loved to have joined us. Um, life's crazy in Asheville. Life's busy. So, uh, but definitely next trip, I will I will let her know. So anyway, uh, Phil tried to get me to come up early as usual. Right in the middle of the song, I told him I'm not going to do it today. I'm going to wait to the end. So I'm supposed to come up here. So uh, anyway. But so anyway, I see a lot of familiar faces. I'm so so honored to be here, so glad to be able to encourage you, hopefully this morning, with what God's been teaching us a lot down in the in the city of Asheville. For some of you who may not know me at all, because I do see some new faces, I was on staff here from, what was it, 2010 to 2013. I did some preaching, some small groups, some local outreach with Next Supper, and uh, a little bit of everything. And so uh, my time here was so precious to me. Uh, it was so formative for what Christ was doing in my life and uh, the, the dividends that, that uh, I am reaping, that, that so my Asheville is reaping, is connected here. A lot of the stirrings, a lot of the things that God was grooming in my life uh, began right here in this room and in this building uh, in this city. So I just want to thank you for those of you who were around to put up with me during that time as, as we were all learning together what it means to follow Jesus. So uh, thank you for... Uh, uh, just just the time spent. So uh, in August of 2013, we did a launch out of here, and we are planting a church in Asheville. And so this morning, I hope to catch you guys up a little bit about what that process has looked like uh, for us. And so anyway, I want to go ahead and catch you guys up on what we've been doing. The primary job of a church planter is to lay what is called an apostolic foundation that's built on the gospel, and so that is really what we've given ourselves to in these early years, and so we're still in many ways mixing that first batch of concrete, uh, getting ready uh, to pour so that so that what is set up is going to be structurally sound. There's a few engineers in the room, right? Just a couple, if I remember correctly. Dan, you're shaking your head. If you get that foundation wrong, the, the analogy is quite obvious, isn't it? The entire structure is, 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 is compromised and will likely fail. And so uh, same work happens as we think about what it means for you and I to be the church is laying uh, a strong foundation. And so that's kind of what, be, that's what I've been giving myself to the past year. We've been doing that around four words. Gospel. Uh, what is the gospel? How does the gospel work? How do we know when, when this seed, when it's planted into our life and it starts to grow and it starts to sprout, how do we know what that, works look like, that work looks like? We spent five months on that, that one word. Uh, we also looked at this word church. Who are, who, who are you and I as the church? And what does it mean to, 
faithfully be the church? What does it mean to, to relate to culture the right way? We also looked at this word discipleship. How do we know we're disciples of Jesus? How do we know that our lives are growing up into Christ, not, not a methodology, not a personality? How do we know we're not looking just like the world, but we're growing up into Him? Big question, isn't it? So we looked at that question. And then the word I want to elaborate with us this morning on is this word, mission. We've been looking a lot at the word mission. Now, in case you guys haven't figured it out, I'm sure you have by now, there's some pretty significant foundational shifts happening in America, isn't there? Some big ones. And these are, these are philosophic shifts. These are, these are shifts happening at the level of paradigm. And so whether or not back in the good old days, about 50 years ago, Mario, I'm going to pick on you this morning. Whether or not, we, whether or not the, the culture was in a worshiping relationship to Jesus, we don't really know because that, that always takes a miracle in the heart to convert us. So it doesn't really matter the cultural climate. It always takes a miracle. But 50, 50 60, 70, 80 years ago, I won't say your name this time, uh, the playing field was more or less monocultural. It was, it, was a, it was kind of an even playing field. And so when you and I would talk about Jesus... When there would be the Jesus speak, people, people knew the terms, didn't they? They knew what you were talking about. They may blow you off, they may disagree, they may rebel, but at least they knew what you were saying. Today, guess what? When you start speaking Jesus, come to Ashford and I'll show you. They, they, look at you like you're, uh, they, look, they look at you like you're speaking a foreign language. They, they look at you kind of funny. And so uh, back, in, back 30, 40 years ago, the church operated the high ground. You and I got to dictate in many ways the terms of culture. Today what's happened is the church has been bumped to the margins. And you and I are now figuring out how to be, not operating from a position of strength, but from a posture of weakness. And so that's a lot of the task uh, for what it means for you and I to be faithful to the gospel. What does it mean to be faithful in this brand new context that we live in? That's really the question that we have been asking ourselves. And so the word of God never changes. The gospel never changes. Who you and I are in Christ never changes. But the context it's changed. You guys with me? Yeah? Okay, good. Okay, and so that, this is the question that's really been taking up a lot of our time. So we've been, we've been looking at uh, what, what does it mean to reawaken, to reactivate this dormant missionary gene that's in our gene pool. You guys know it's in the DNA strand, right? This is part of who we are. And so what does it look like for you and I to begin to, to grow up into what God has already pronounced to be true of us? One author said it this way, Christians are sitting on a gold mine called the church. The difficulty is getting them to recognize that it is in fact gold. And so uh, the good news for us this morning is that we don't have to reinvent ourselves. We don't have to change the formula. Um, we don't have to compromise to the culture to try to be relevant. But we do have to do some growing. We have to undergo some growing pains. And so the good news for us is that also, this isn't the first time that God's elect people have found themselves lost at sea. Okay? So we have an awesome book. A four cha- it's a little bitty four-chapter book tucked away into the pages of the Old Testament. It's called the book of Jonah. Jonah's name means the dove. And this is going to be the dove that's going to be sent by God upon a dead people to bring forth life out of darkness. So go ahead and get your Bible out or get your screen out. Go ahead and make your way to the book of Jonah. And then we will uh, go ahead and uh, start picking up some stuff there. Do y'all cheer? Did I hear that? Cheer for the Word of God. Amen. So uh, when you guys think of Jonah, 
what, what do you typically think about? Come on. Come on. The big fish, yeah. And there's definitely a big fish in the book. It's not a submarine, in case you were wondering. It is definitely a fish. Don't let our modern scientific worldview deceive you. It's a fish. But you know what's happened is, is the fish has kind of co-opted the book a little bit, and that's kind of all we think about, isn't it? Uh, this book is an incredible book. I think, it's the most, I think it's the greatest missionary book that we have in the entire Old Testament. And so that's the book we're going to look at uh, this evening. I'm going to kind of give you guys a whirlwind tour of the book. Uh, you, know what, you know what's ironic about this book? 75% of the book is not about the mission. It's about the missionary. It's about the missionary people. And so that's what we're going to look at today as we... As we, as we, what we've done is we've been training on this, on this idea of mission, is we've been mining this book and excavating out some missionary principles. How are you and I to think about the culture we're sent into? How are we to begin to orient ourselves so that we can be faithful? And so that's what we're going to do today. Let me start out with just a question for you guys. Why did God create Israel in the first place? Y'all can interact maybe if you want to say something or I'll, or I'll, or I'll tell you. Why did God create Israel? What was the root reason? What's up? Thank you, Joey. Absolutely. You think about way back in the Abrahamic covenant, or when he spoke to Moses, there was this thing called the Tower of Babel, and there was a collective rebellion against God. There's this other way to view life other than what God had set out. And so they, all the people came together in rebellion and said, we're going to create another government, we're going to create another city that's going to replace you. We don't need you. And God came down really in mercy. It was judgment and mercy. He dispersed the people and he created all of these nations. And then out of, those, out of all those nations, he called a man, a man named Abram. And you've got to remember, Abram wasn't some righteous, godly dude. He was from Ur of the Chaldeans. And God revealed himself and said, go to the land that I'll show you. I'll make you great. I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He would speak to Moses a little bit later, and he would say, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. Why? What, what does a priest do? Takes all the people, brings them to God in a sympathetic way. The nation of Israel was meant to be a nation that would take all these other nations and bring them to God in a sympathetic way. That was the very reason why God had created Israel. Okay, That was, the, that was to be their emerging relationship. With all these other nations. Now, how did, how, did the, how did the nation of Israel do as we progress along a little bit further in the story of God? How did they do? Ah, not pr- pretty bad. That's a kind way to say it, yeah. Not too well, did they? If, if we go a little bit further along, they started to look at the nations and say, we like that better. Other than, we, we like, we're more impressed with the nations than with you, God. We, we, we see the way they like it. They, like, they have a king. We want a king to rule over us. We're going to attach you. That's okay. We want a king. And they started to slowly compromise who they were because they wanted to be like the nations. And they started to, to forsake their calling. And eventually, they defected. Eventually, they abandoned their God for the ways of the nations. And so... Um, this is this is a maybe this is a brief script to to see how the nation of Israel the the, the place they ended up at and as, as we would zoom in on the northern ten tribes which is where the book of Jonah comes into play for us if you think about those uh, that northern that northern section there was this sanctioned split in Israel 
And it's kind of hard to read. If you've tried to read through First and Second Kings, you're like, okay, where are we at? Which king are we dealing with? You could, it's going to take some work to follow. But if you follow the north, the question that follows them the entire time is when are they going to repent of the sin of Jeroboam? Jeroboam made a, a, a costly decision in the very beginning that led the entire nation away. And so the, the, so the question is, when are they going to come back to God? And God sent a, a pretty incredible man, you may have heard of him, his name's Elijah, to call the nation back. And if you remember his ministry, some incredible things happened, right? It didn't rain for three years. It was, a, it was a big showdown between Elisha and the 850 prophets. And Yahweh emerged victorious. And, and Elisha said, this is it. Man, they're going to repent and come back. And we're going to be able to move on with what God had intended for us. Did they repent? No. No, they didn't. And, he, and Elijah goes, goes away and despairs. And so God says, you know, it's not over. Don't worry. I'm gracious. And he calls a man named Elisha. And Elisha had the double portion, right? We had the floating of the axe head, the Shumanite, her, uh, her widow, her, uh, not her widow, she was a widow. Her oil multiplied, her son raised from the dead. We saw Nahum and the leper become healed. Did the nation repent at the preaching of Elisha? No, they didn't. We get along further in the story and we go to a man named Jehu. And we have this amazing, this is like the Terminator, man. He just starts cleansing Israel. And he deals with the house of Ahab. He deals with the remaining prophets of Baal. Did the nation repent with Jehu? No, they didn't. They didn't. And then we get to a, a really a powerful general from Syria. If you go to 2 Kings 8, his name is Hazael. And he, he, pre- he says some pretty awful things that's going to happen to the nation. He says, our strongholds you'll set on fire. You'll kill our young men with the sword. Our little ones you'll dash into pieces. Our women with children you'll rip open the wounds. This, this incredible chastening. And yet, did they repent and come back to God? No, they didn't. And so we get a little bit further along. And then we get to a man named Jeroboam II. And God sends one final prophet to the north. You know who that is? It's Jonah. This is Jonah's call. This is his ministry. And you know what's going to happen? He's going to call them to come back to Yahweh to listen to the reason I've called you in the first place. And guess what they're going to do? They're not going to come. And so you know what God's going to tell Jonah to do? Go away to these wicked, cruel, arrogant, proud Gentiles. Maybe they will listen. Maybe they will hear my voice. Maybe they... Maybe I can become a king to them. And so that's, that's when, we pick up, when we pick up here in chapter 1, verse 1. That's the call for Jonah. Now, let me just ask you, church, if that was your call, would you go? Because we're, gonna, we're all tempted to give Jonah a pretty hard time, as we're going to see in just a second. That's the call for Jonah as we, as we get into this book. Go, go to chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, there's your call, Arise and go. To Nineveh, the great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Again, this is the call that Jonah has. The prophet uh, Jonah has some contemporaries, Amos, Hosea, and there's been some prophecy that are starting to file in, and it's saying, I'm going to take you off into captivity using these people. They're going to train you on what it means to trust me. Now, Jonah finds himself in the middle of the script. Have you ever been, that, been in that place before where you're like, God's doing something and I'm in the middle here. 
How am I to be? How am I to obey? Because here's here's a question for us. If God judges the Assyrians, can they drag Israel off into captivity? They can't, can they? If they're judged. If God somehow miraculously delivers the Assyrians, somehow, some way, <coughs> Jonah, can then they be drugged off into captivity? They can. They can. And Jonah finds himself right in the middle of, what, of being torn between two realities of which way do I go. And so this is the predicament that Jonah finds himself in. And it's quite a predicament. And so you get, let's look at verse 3. Here's what Jonah does. It says, Jonah arose, he arose, which, what's your verb? To flee from the presence of the Lord, to Tarshish, and then it repeats it for emphasis, to flee from the presence of the Lord. Okay, God calls Jonah to go northeast, Jonah goes southwest. At least he knew how to book an airline, you know what I'm saying? He knew, he knew how to fly well. Even if he was flying away from what God had intended, Jonah goes the direct opposite way that God has called him to go. Um, yeah. Let's stop here and do some heart work on Jonah, okay? Because there, there's some stuff here that I think we could, we could learn from him as we get into some of these missionary lessons for us. Anytime you and I do not um, obey Jesus, there's some other motivations in the heart other than the gospel. And most of the time it's motivated by either pride or fear. One of these two things is going on. So if, if pride would have motivated Jonah, what would that have looked like? Well, one of the ways it might have looked like, like we've already alluded to, is this idea of national pride. Okay? In other words, I have a love for nation over love for neighbor. And so if somehow the plan of God is so orchestrated where I have to choose between obedience to Yahweh versus going with my people, I'm going to go with my people. Because I'm not really after the kingdom of God. I'm after this idea of patriotism, of being loyalty, even when it means disobeying what Yahweh has told me. So there would have been a temptation for national pride. There may have also been a temptation for spiritual pride. Okay? Maybe picture in your mind what a Ninevite in today's culture might look like. And you think it would have been a temptation for Jonah to say, I'm not going to Nineveh. Heck no. We may be bad. We're not that bad. Okay? There would have been a temptation for Jonah to be a little bit of a bigot and to say, I'm above you. I'm better than you. I'm more privileged than you. And therefore, Jonah would have felt justified to remove himself culturally from these Ninevites. I'm not going to defile myself going to that city, man. Forget about it. No way. And he would have he would have had a, he would have had a pride about him that would have distanced him from the very call God gave him. See that? That, that? that would have been a temptation and he would have thumbed his nose and said, those despicable Ninevites, I'll never go to them. I'll never be a part of that culture. There may have also been some fear. What might have Jonah's friends thought when Jonah broke the news God told me to go to Nineveh and preach a message what do you think there been some fear from his reputation what are the people going to think what am I, what am I, what's my family going to think and he would have gone from being a court prophet to a traitor prophet you're a traitor 
you betrayed us. Turned your back on us. And more than likely, his political career would have been over. Because Jeroboam II probably wouldn't have thought too kindly of these kind of plans. There may have also been some just fear of the Ninevites. Could you imagine going to a, a city that was regarded as the largest city in the world at that day? Walls 50 foot wide, 100 feet high. And you're going to go into that city and tell them, my God, my, my, my lowly God from lowly Israel is about to judge you? What do you think the Ninevites might have, how might have they responded apart from God's intervention? They would have probably just sat, they probably laughed for a long time and they probably would have just killed him, you know. They would have just done away with Jonah like they did everybody else. You see, for us in the room, Jonah is a, is a, is a picture of Israel that, in that day and, and you and I, there's some things here for us as we think about relating to our culture, relating to the, the Ninevites. Who are the people there far from God in our culture? And uh, as long as fear and pride are the primary motivators in our heart, if that's what our heart's circulating on, we'll never be able to go. And we'll find every reason, every excuse why it's justifiable for us not to go. I told a uh, preached to an elderly uh, congregation last week i talked about the ldl cholesterol that bad ldl cholesterol and it sticks doesn't it and it gets in the heart and it restricts the flow this is the ldl cholesterol that gets in the heart and it restricts what god's trying to do through us when we start to think this way and so um big lesson here as, as we get started in the book you know what's ironic about the rest of chapter one if you know the story jonah's determined not to listen right and he goes down into the ship, down into the hole, down. He's going just further away. And, and he's forced into proclamation in verse 9. Through this storm, God sends. And, out of, and it's like God forcing him to share what's really happening and what happens to these pagan sailors on the ship. They end up coming to know Yahweh. And they start worship. By the end of chapter 1, they're worshiping the living God of Israel. Isn't that crazy? Does that encourage us this morning? Have you ever had God work in spite of you? Like you know you're not following what God's plan is and yet you see God's mercy. You see His plan carrying forward even in spite of us. And so as we watch the dove go out, um, for you and I, uh, God's, God's plan, what, what the Spirit of God is, is desiring to accomplish in Kingsport, in Asheville, in our world, he will accomplish, even if in spite of us. And so we get to watch that happen in chapter 1 as we, as we survey the life of Jonah. As we get down into chapter 2, again, I'm, gonna, I'm blowing through this. We spent a month on this, but y'all can handle it. Is there, are we good so far? Let's keep going. As we move into chapter 2, uh, we find out that, that Jonah was in the way, don't we? We find out that Jonah, there's some work that needed to happen in the missionary, Right? We find out that Jonah had some fleshly ambitions of what ministry was going to look like. And he probably had an Excel spreadsheet that had it charted out. This is exactly what ministry was going to look like, and we're going to watch it happen. Do you think, you think the whale was on the spreadsheet? I don't think it made it. No, it didn't. Because, see, he had a lot of flesh. He had a lot of, he had a lot of this in the way. He had a lot of himself in the way. And so what we find out in chapter 2 is that, is that Jonah had to go through his own process. Jonah had, he was, he was called to preach something to Nineveh that had become alien to him. He had forgotten the very thing that defined Israel. And so God graciously um, 
fact, they throw him over, right? The idea of substitution. You must throw me over to be saved. And they probably think, man, it's over for Jonah. Like he's in the sea now and God graciously sends the, sends the, the giant fish. Here we go. Here he is. The cameo appearance. He's in the story now. And he goes down. And we watch chapter 2 is, is, a, is a, really a chapter on repentance. And we watch him start to relate. Listen to how he talks about God. He says, you cast me into the deep. By the way, who cast him into the deep? In chapter 1. The sailors cast him into the deep. How does Jonah interpreting his circumstances? God, you did this. You cast me into the deep. All your waves, all your billows passed over me. I was driven away from your sight. Who is Jonah's problem with? Is it with the Ninevites? It's with his God. And Jonah, in chapter 2, undergoes this radical reorientation to who he really is. Because he's been sold a whole other narrative about who, what his life's about. Who are you as an Israelite? Who are you as the prophet of God? And we find this prophet is not able to dispense the news as the prophet. What does that say about how he's going to relate as he's thinking about bringing, leading his entire nation? And so in chapter 2, Jonah under, undergoes this process. And there's an amazing verse in chapter 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. Take a look at it. He, he says something as if it's a brand new teaching. He says, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. You see what Jonah's saying? It's, it's like, it's like brand, it's like Jonah's finally realizing for the first time that I bring nothing to the table. I, there's nothing that I contribute at the table of grace. I bring nothing, I receive all. It's wholly a work of God. How did Israel get into this thing? Did they, they create themselves as a nation? No. no. It's God's idea. God birthed them. God carried them on eagles' wings. The whole story is about what God is doing through them, and yet they have this other narrative about who they are and why they exist. And Jonah has this, it, it's, like, it's like the 101 stuff, and yet he is totally it hits him like, like he's it's for the first time. And he says, that which I have vowed, I will pay. Everything belongs to you, God. Everything belongs to you. Salvation is from the Lord, man. And, and he is born again, right? Jonah finally gets an accurate view of himself and who, why, why he's here. And what, what, what's his life supposed to be about? And that's chapter 2. It's an incredible chapter as we watch as we watch this thing happen. And so one of the things that for you and I, as, as we think about mission, mission must happen to us before it will ever happen through us. Okay? In other words, Jesus has to become good news to us before it will ever become good news through us. And I'm not, I'm not saying true news. I'm not saying right news. I'm saying Good news. Well, you start to see your, your burdens lift. Your life starts to change. You start to see life, same circumstances, same events, but you start to see your life in a totally different light because God is now giving you a brand new way to understand and how to see. It was Augustine that said, you must believe in order to understand, not understand in order to believe. And so when you and I have our lives front-loaded with the gospel and we start to see through that lens, 
exact same life, exact same past, exact same circumstances, exact same crappy job or difficult marriage or fill in the blank, and yet you're going to begin to see a whole new other way to understand what your life's about when you come face-to-face with this message. And so for you and I, if we're not absolutely convinced of Jesus, do we think our neighbors are going to be convinced? Do we think our hardened city is going to be convinced? If we're not convinced. So part of our own learning, part of Jonah's learning, part of Israel's learning is, do you know who I am? And do you know why you're here? And do you know what I want to do through you? And we're going to find actually God's not going to beat down his people. But God's going to be so kind and so gracious, so gentle, as he nurses along his church here in the Old Testament. Chapter 3 gets really fun. Uh, Let me say one more thing on this. Uh, Jonah had to be crucified in order to be qualified. Okay? And so the the world, here we go, would look at what happened to Jonah. And what do you think the world would be tempted to say? about his, his future ministry. Eh, Jonah, you had a good run, man. It's over for you. You go retire. It, you've disqualified yourself. But you know what happens? This one act is going to be what qualifies Jonah because he's going to understand. And a lot of, for us, we have to go through failure a lot of times to actually learn grace because we have so much of ourselves, so much of our own flesh that comes to the table and why would we think god can resurrect ministry through us and when that hasn't sufficiently happened to us and so it's encouraging don't don't let your failure cause you to go into despair because we we all have to pass through this we all have to have our jonah experience before real life-giving spirit-led ministry can happen through us so do not despair when you have to pass through this we've all passed through it we could go do testimonies right about the next two or three hours on how God is doing this work through us. Chapter 3 is, gets fun because this is what a life in the Spirit looks like. What happens to the Nineveh? Alan, what happens? They listen, they heed. The entire city comes to know Yahweh from the greatest to the least. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue should confess, right? The whole city. The whole city comes to know, submits to the God. The God that... Israel, by the way, would not listen to. This whole city repents. This whole city comes to know the love of Yahweh. Which is, by the way, again, why they were there. And we watched this amazing work happen in the book. You know, as I think about this place, um, you and I like for ministry to happen from a place of strength, from a place of power, don't we? We like we like for we like for ministry to happen where we don't have to, nothing it doesn't cost us anything, right? Jonah, you notice he becomes most powerful. This powerful work happens through him. That's the better way to say it. When Jonah's in a place of weakness, he's in a place of brokenness, and and so the the lie for you and I is, let's shield ourselves from this, let's protect ourselves from this, um, and then we will minister out of the the gifts and the strength. And the great news for us is that um, as you pass through this, God's grooming you to multiply things through you where there'll be ministries that will happen. You couldn't conceive of happening. Do you think, Jonah, again, Excel spreadsheet, all of Nineveh will repent? No. Heck no. He couldn't dream of God being that merciful. He couldn't, he couldn't imagine how God would do this. And it's amazing to watch. 
And so for you and I, there's a great verse in 2 Corinthians 4 that says we have this treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay, a broken vessel. Does a broken vessel hold anything? It holds nothing, man. It's, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's not of value. And yet God says, this is how I'm going to contain this incredible message, this, this, this idea that I have put in you that will literally save the world. In fact, this will one day erupt in the kingdom. This is how it works, you see. So when you and I start to see how it works, we now can know how to be as we watch this process happen. As we get to the uh, end of chapter 3, um, would this be a good place to end the book? Like, Jonah's rebelled. He's gone into the fish. Hollywood creates a good story like this that works. And then the entire city gets saved. Why not just end it here, right? Be a great place just to shut it down. And Awesome, man. This is a great story. Great story, man. No, we got one more chapter to go. You know what? It's this last chapter, chapter 4, which is really the most important. Because it's in chapter 4, the author holds back that the deepest, the innermost cave of Jonah. What's really inside of this man? And the thing that we learn in chapter 4, it's on the mission field that we get to see who we really are. Okay? In other words, whatever foundation your life is built on, it's going to come out as we get on the mission. You come with me for a life and let's do mission together. And you'll get to see my foundation. I'll get to see your foundation. And what we get to see in this man is that he's still in process. The grace that justifies is still working its way into the sanctification process, isn't it? And um, on the mission field, all of these things inside of us that we didn't even know were there. Who here has been on an overseas mission trip? Yeah, we got some. Okay, good. Did things come out on the mission that you didn't know was inside of you? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And you start to realize all these things, and you're like, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm so afraid. Or maybe you're like, man, I didn't realize how addicted I am to comfort. Like, where's my Dr. Pepper? Where's my iPhone? Um... I don't like these people. I don't like them. Or maybe you're just like, I'm apathetic. I don't even care, man. I just want to get back to, you know, get back to my, get back to Holston Street. You don't get back to my house. Or maybe you start to say, you know what? I think I'm better than these people. And it's on the mission that all these things will come out. And, you, and you'll, you'll have a moment when you'll say, well, who am I? Like, who am I right now? And you know what's great is that um, that's when we can start to disciple on who we really are. And so um, the temptation for you and I is going to be to blame that situation, right? To say, man, I, just, I don't want to get back in that again, and you're going to quarantine your life so you don't have to engage in that again. And yet that's the very thing God's using to help grow you up and use you. Does that make sense? And so uh, mission, as we would say, is, is an indispensable ingredient in defining what a life of discipleship looks like. We ha- in other words, uh, if you're a soldier and you've gone to boot camp, how do we really know when you're, if you're a good soldier? Is if, if you stay at boot camp for the next 10 years? We don't know if you're a good soldier until you get on the battlefield and we find out what's in you. Same way with us, until we get on the mission. And the good news for us is you can do that today. You don't have to go overseas anymore. 
You can just go to your neighbor. You can go to your next. You can go to your the neighboring street, and you can get to know some people around you there. So, uh, the thing I have here is how we <clears throat> react is a better thermometer on our hearts than how we act. So, if you think about that, a lot of times we come to a gathering on Sunday. Here's how we're going to act. Here's how we're going to dress. Here's where we're, here's how we're going to say things. Someone ask how we're doing. Oh, doing great. Yeah, thank you. Good to see you. When you, when you and I react. It's, it's, it's spontaneous, and that's often. And so Jonah in chapter 4 reacts. At the end of chapter 3, God cools off his anger. What happens at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1? Look at look at four one. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and what? He was angry. A better translation, it was a great evil to Jonah. It's the same Hebrew word we find throughout the book evil it was a great evil to jonah god he looked at god's plans and he said that's evil that you would do that can you believe that and he begins to despair in the book now again let's look at how god relates to his prophet here go to verse four and he asked the lord asked jonah a very insightful question chapter four verse four the Lord said, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Another way to say it would be, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Jonah, do you have a right? I want you to hear what the Lord's implying as he asked that question. See, Jonah still thought he had rights before God. Jonah still, he thought he could claim God. He could control God. God always retains his freedom. God can use a donkey, can't he, if he wants to. See, sometimes Jonah's privileged, deserving life, and Israel has somehow convinced him he had rights before God. We'll go ahead and start to close out here. Since uh, it's tax-paying season, we'll talk about our taxes for a second. You're supposed to pay your taxes. Get to Caesar with the Caesars, right? Anybody not paid their taxes? You don't have to raise your hand. I haven't paid mine. I'm, I'm in the middle of trying to get it worked out. Think about taxes for just a second and how, how the whole tax thing works. When you pay your taxes, you expect some things in return, don't you? We claim some public rights. And so what public rights do we claim because we pay our taxes to the county, to the city, to the state? Think about it. Don't get political. I'm not trying to create a big fight up here. We want our roads to be smooth, right? No big potholes on your, wherever, what street you live on. You want, if it, if it snows, you want to come plow that street, give some salt. You want the, the policemen to keep your neighborhood safe. You want, if there's a fire, you want them to come get your fire, get, get your house cooled off from the, from the flames. Okay? So, so those are the rights we have because we pay in our taxes. That's the whole way it works. And so there's conditions, there's limitations. You're entitled to certain rights because of the tax dollars that you put in. What happens when you, those rights aren't met? We get a little fired up, don't we? Yeah, when our rights aren't met. What does the gospel have to say about our rights? It's a big question as we close it out this morning. Because here's the deal. If you and I deep down, deep down believe that you're in a relationship with Jesus because of anything you've brought to the table, then you will relate to God as a tax collector. Okay? 
I've been in church all these years. I've given this much money. I've gone on a mission trip. God, you're supposed to do this, therefore, in my life. And when you don't behave and respond the way I think you should, I'm angry. See? You think you still have rights. And, and there will be conditions and there will be limitations on your relationship with God. And your obedience will always be conditioned. And you'll always end up trying to control Him. you end up trying to get Him to do what you think He should do. And when it doesn't work out, you'll have your Jonah moment. And you'll start getting angry. And you'll start pouting. However, when you and I begin to get that there's nothing we bring to the table of grace. There's nothing. It is 100% exclusively because of what God has done for us in Christ. It changes things. And you realize it's a free gift. Using the taxpayer analogy, you put nothing in. And you have received everything in return. You, we, we pay nothing. Actually, something was paid. Something we couldn't pay. And we receive everything in return. Let me give a quick analogy. Veronica. If I give Veronica, if I give it to her, huh, say it again. Daggone it. Varinka. Why did I say that? Varinka. Did I get it right? Dang it. If I give Varinka my cell phone, here, it's yours. It's free. Will it change your life? Maybe. She already has a cell phone probably, probably a lot better than the Moto X. So she may be have a little be have a little bit of gratitude. She may not. She has no gratitude. She despises the gifts. That's what happens. Now what if I say, Oh, I have another one at home. You can have that one. Does that change the gift? Well, it maybe changes some because it's not a cost to me. If I have two more or three more at home. Depending on what the gift is. What if that's my only cell phone? Does it change the gift a little bit? A little bit, yeah. Now, what if I say, my house, my cars. Here you go. What? Are you thankful? <laughs> yeah? Good. I have a, it's a Toyota Tundra. It's out in the back. 2002. But what if I say, you have, you have two houses on that key, actually. Uh but what if I say, I already have, I have two more. You, no, no worries. You keep it. What if I said, we will be homeless. We will not eat. Our, my three kids will not eat. Take it. She must have it or she, her family will be homeless. I say, take it. Does that change? Does that change the gift? And so for you and I, for Jonah, when you and I... what? What God is trying to get at Jonah is I've given you everything. I've given you everything. You've already inherited everything. And he goes to the end of the book and he says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Because I've been compassionate with you. And see, we can't give if we don't know we've been given to. We've been given the greatest gift on the planet. It says we've already inherited the kingdom. Now, our scientific method will tell us it's not here because we can't validate it. One day when it shows up, they'll say, oh, there it is. It's here now. We've been given the greatest gift. And so as we get to the end of the book, God doesn't beat down Jonah. He wants Jonah to see what he has been given for free is more than something he could ever get with his tax dollars. 
Okay? Greater than you could ever get. And here's the lie. Because our enemy is a tax collector. And you pay in, and he'll give you a little bit. But guess what happens when you don't pay in? He'll now persecute you. He'll take from you. He'll destroy you. Jesus gave us. The Father gave us everything in the Son. We have nothing left to prove. We have nothing left to work for. It's been totally given. And it's in the, multiply this by a thousand or a million. And now you're starting to get grace. And how it changes. Some of us may say, well, that would lead to anarchy in a society. Not when you understand the cost of the gift. Now we will say, Lord, wherever, however, whatever, tell me. Tell me. And that's what Jonah was trying to learn, wasn't he? That's what we're trying to learn. As we learn how to be a people in the right in this relationship, see if we can be used for what God's wanting to do. Okay? Alright, let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your work of grace in my life. I certainly wasn't deserving. I know where my life was heading when you interrupted me. You invaded my life about 20 years ago. And I never would have thought my life would have looked the way it has. And it was a life of failure, of disappointment, of failed marriage, of addiction, of alcoholism, of so much that wasn't right. And yet, you've taken a story we would say is just, let's just, let's just, start over and you say no we're going to redeem and we're going to make it beautiful and that's the way our lives work in the church we're a people that are not so that you can become a God who is and frankly we don't always like your plans like Jonah we don't always we're not always on board and yet you're a God that is so patient and that so encouraging as we think about our lives, what you're doing with our, us individually as, as families and, and children as a collective unit because Kingsport needs this kind of message. Asheville needs this kind of message. So we pray you would use us as we come to you, as we ask you to grow us up into this way of seeing and this way of believing. And we pray in in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.